Jesus for the past few weeks, and today is no exception. We're looking at the last, well, this week and next, we'll look at the parables that Jesus teaches before he goes to his death on the cross on our behalf. And it is the last teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. Because once Jesus is raised from the dead, then he will come essentially to show himself to his disciples and to give them instructions that will usher in the age of the church. So this is that sort of last bit of teaching. And when you know that you won't have an opportunity to say something to someone again, maybe for a while you're going on a trip, they're going on a trip, some, you, know, it's just, you know that you won't have an opportunity to connect you tend to concentrate your thoughts and your words on the things that are most important. And Jesus is doing that in this case. And Cindy just read the parable. It's called the parable of the ten virgins. It's a parable that, like all of his parables, would mean instantly it would be connecting with his audience. Weddings of, of the where you have a procession of the groom going to the bride's house to get the bride and then to come back to the groom's house where their ceremony would be held, that would be just commonplace and regular. So people who are listening to this are already in the scene. And this is, of course, as we've been teaching, this is how parables work. The parables are aspects of God's truth that we need to hear that tell us something about him and invite us to a response. Parables are something that Tell us some, that parables tell us about God in a way that invites us in so that we find a way that we can respond more to the Lord. And so let's look at it in, through that lens. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus is often talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the new age that'll come in, not the new age that we grew up with maybe, but the new age of the kingdom of God, his rule and his reign, what that means for us, what that means for this world. This world will pass away, but heaven and earth will be recreated, earth will be recreated, renewed. A new heaven and a new earth, says scripture. And so Jesus is telling, he's teaching through this parable. What is he teaching? Well, as I said, he speaks to the scene that would be very familiar, and he talks about this groom who's coming, this bridegroom. This would be a very joyous occasion. Like, what's not to like about this? We've seen him use wedding illustrations before. So it's bringing this sense of the kingdom of heaven arriving with joy. And so far, so good. And part of that would have been ten virgins that would be typically part of the groom's family in this case because they're waiting for the bridegroom to come. They are part of his you know, extended family. And it's a place of honor to be a virgin who gets to look forward to the groom's arrival and joy and shouts and welcome and all that. But then he talks about what, what happens. The groom start to get some problems. The groom is delayed. He doesn't come when he's supposed to. Everything was all set, and now where's the groom? Have you ever been to a party, like a surprise party for somebody, and they're like, they'll be here at 8, and they're not here at 8. They'll be here, you know, texts are coming, phone messages. They'll be here at 9. Sorry, we got lost. Whatever. But sometimes when we're waiting for somebody to come that we want to honor, and they are delayed, now a little bit of tension can build up. And it, he's so delayed that some of the ten virgins, half of them actually, are running out of oil. But the other half have prepared. And so when he actually comes, and this is going to be the shocker for those that are listening, when the bridegroom comes, he only has half the number of virgins to greet him. Wait, what? We had ten? 
hired, if you will, 10 honored with that privilege of being able to say, you know, hallelujah, you're coming. And only half of them, only five show up. Only five are there when he arrives. Where are the others? They're off buying oil. This, this would be just so surprising, so stunning. Today we would say to the five that were not there, you had one job. All you had to do was be there at the time the groomer, one job just to be there when he finally arrived. And you did not do the one job that you had. And that's meant to be heartbreaking in a way. And so Jesus begins to explain, well, the, the virgins that had the oil, they brought extra oil or what those were called. And the ones that did not bring extra oil were those that were called foolish. And so the wise ones are the ones that go in, and then the door is shut. And the foolish ones, they're in their mind, okay, that was bad, but it's not catastrophic. I'm just going to go knock on the door and say, hey, we're here finally. Let me in. And then this is the surprising piece, even more surprising than only half of the virgins were there when the bridegroom came. Later, later the others came also, and they said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. I don't know you as a Hebrew idiom, meaning we're done. We're, we're not connected any longer. It's a stunning and tragic development. But the, so Jesus is drawing people in to this story about the kingdom, the story about who he is, the story about how to be prepared for his coming. And those that are preparing for his return are likened to those who are wise, and those that are ill-prepared are likened to those who are foolish. We'll explore that in a minute. But then he gives the instruction for us, therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Keep watch, because you don't know when Jesus will come again. Whether he comes in, with all his, the heavenly host and this life is over and the second coming has happened, or more commonly so far, people are going to him if they know him. But one way or the other, he is coming. How are we drawn in this story? Where does this story find us? Does it find us in that place where we feel like we are living wisely, where we're using our time well, where we are saying, Lord, I am waiting for your return and I am living as if you're coming again? This is what the wise virgin is doing. She is anticipating. She doesn't know when he will come, when the bridegroom will come. And so she uses her resources and her time to prepare for any number of outcomes. But why does she do that? Because she too realizes she has the one job. And that one job is to be there faithfully so when the bridegroom comes, he can be honored. And in like fashion, we too have a one job. The job, if we know Christ, is to live for him with all that we have all that we are and all that we desire, that there are no other gods ahead of that, no other desires. And it's not like the, the foolish virgins could be tagged with that and say, well, they were living for themselves. Why they were foolish is they just had assumptions about what, life, about what this job entailed. And these assumptions were the things that 
ended up being problematic. What did they assume? They assumed that the bridegroom would be on time. They assumed that the oil they had would be okay. They assumed that even when things went south, they could still get back in. These are assumptions that prove false and prove Instruction for us today, I think the first thing that we can see is like, well, what, is, what are some of the assumptions that maybe we're thinking of or, or hanging on to about our life in Christ? Can we say that we are the wise, on the wise side of that, as opposed to the foolish? What do, what do, what do we mean by wisdom and foolishness? The, the words that are used in this parable are the same words that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. When he concludes the sermon by saying, I'll tell you, a big summation of all that I've said, it is like he who puts my words into practice is like the wise person who built his house upon the rock. And when the winds blew, it stood. It did not fall, it did not crash. But the foolish person is the one who hears my words but does not put them into practice. Builds a foundation, builds a foundation of sand, a foundation of assumptions, a foundation of my ideas and not God's truth. We all have that tendency, don't we? I'll just raise my own hand. If anybody wants to join me afterwards, you can silently let me know. But we, we all have that tendency, and this is why this parable is applicable. This is why we need it today. This is why we need to take this and say, how does this apply to my life, Lord? Because the stakes are pretty high, aren't they? To be shut out of the kingdom is beyond comprehension. Nobody wants to contemplate that. Nobody wants to... Con- we don't like... These are parables. This, this week and next week, these are parables of judgment when you really get down to it. And we like to think that, well, we're not going to be judged. We're going to go in with the bridegroom, and so we should, but we will as we stay watchful. I don't want to be judged. I don't want to be found wanting. Have you ever been judged? We know what it's like to feel judged. You know, we carry wounds from judgment. We carry uh, protection. We don't go to places out of a sense of like, well, I don't want that to happen again. We make assumptions about how we're going to live our lives at times. We make assumptions about what's important to us. I got judged because I was inadequate here, so now I'm going to go ahead and spend all my time proving that I'm adequate. Well, is that what God wants? Tired of living in, in hard financial situations, and so I have a sense of that if I could just get to this level, that if I could show those that didn't think I'd amount to anything, that, that I could make this kind of income, I'd be okay. We all have things that, that tempt us to run after something other than God is. You were waiting for to use the, the parable here, a different bridegroom, some different thing that we're waiting for. I don't know, but we have that. But we want to be those who are wise and not those who are foolish. This may be a word. I don't know if, how much of a word it is here tonight, but I think of people I know that would be called cultural Christians, people that maybe grew up with the faith, grew up going to church, But are they the ones who are living for Christ? And if they can't say that they are, can they be assured that they can go in with the bridegroom? As a pastor, I would challenge that. As a pastor, I would say, you want to make your hope and election sure. You want to say, 
the bridegroom is coming, and I'm going in with them. When Jesus comes again, I want to be with him. As I said, these are parables about judgment. So cultural Christians, you know, your grandparents' faith isn't going to save you. Your grandparents' prayers may have been helping you, and they still help you. Sometimes we can be in jeopardy of, while thinking we're wise, we might be foolish because we're emphasizing the piety, but not necessarily the practicality. We focus heavenward, but somehow the needs of the people around us don't seem to impact us or influence us. This is Amos. This is the Old Testament that was that reading. Amos is a prophet who rebukes the people. He, he says, the Lord says your, your worship is worthless, in, in essence. I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, this is they, they were actually commanded to do these things. You bring choice fellowship offerings. You're keeping kosher, in other words. I have no regard for them. Your songs are just noise. Why is he saying this? But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. To be pious, to say, I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but somehow do not love my neighbor as myself is an impossibility in the kingdom of God. When we give our lives to the Lord, he makes us new. He starts a process. He, he transforms us so that we are more like Christ. And that transformation it results in actual connection and doing things for people that need help, need uh, our time, our presence, like the wise virgins that you know, we are called to spend more money than we would like. We're called to have some contingency plans. We're called to have some patience. We're called to have some compassion. So cultural Christians, or if, we, if we're prone to emphasizing a certain piety, if we have assumptions about what we need in life, these can skew us more towards the foolish than to the wise. How do we, how do we become good watchers? You know, this is what Jesus is telling us to do. Therefore, keep watch. Look for the bridegroom. Keep your eyes open. Keep your head up. He's coming soon. There's a sense of anticipation. We don't know the day or the hour, but there's a sense of imminence that's in this. Well, how do we watch? Well, there's just this sense of God's joy that's in anticipation of the bridegroom's coming. But we want to be, uh, as I said, be wise. Let's skew towards being wise and away from being foolish. To do, to be more wise than perhaps we feel we are today, or more desirous of being wiser than we are. That's to examine our priorities, our time, our resources, and arrange them in the way that God has called us specifically in our occupation. So we don't have to do great and bold and fantastic things. We don't have to quit our jobs and, and go to some place unless God's been knocking on your door that way, in which case we'll have a prayer for you, we'll send you off, and we'll look forward to your, your letter. Um, but for the most part, he's calling us to do that in where we are and in our occupations now. So what does that look like? What, Lord, how do I be your person? How do I keep watch to make sure that I am uh, being who you need me to be, to do the one job you have me to do as a spouse, as an employee, as a neighbor, as a sibling, as a parent, as a child? What is that, Lord? How can I arrange my priorities, my time? That calling will look different for each of us because we have different contexts. But the wise person is the one who arranges and relies on the Lord. 
Avoid foolishness. As I said, I've been talking about assumptions, but maybe this is a time as we go home and look into this week to question our assumptions. What am I assuming about God or about Jesus that is not reflective of actually who he is? I give you, you know, what is it that I, f- I fear more or I fear I often think about more than pleasing him? I, uh, uh, as I was asking this question, preparing the sermon, I thought, well, for myself, how would I answer that? And I, I know there's a strain in my own upbringing and in my own ministry where to, to have a good reputation with those around you is an important thing. I was raised like that. My dad said, you know, your name counts for a lot. You don't want to tarnish it. You don't want to do things that are going to, you know, take away from that. So reputation becomes a big thing. But if I'm asking the question, is the, my concern for how I'm seen by who, right? Is my reputation, who, what's the ter- determinant of my reputation? People think of me or is it what God thinks of me? There will come a time, I think, in our lives, certainly, uh, you know, it's already been times, but I'm sure there's more, and I think you can also share in that kind of process where to please God means to please people that are in our world or in our circle. Do I care? What's my assumption? My assumption maybe is that I have to take care of my own reputation and God won't? Is that my assumption? I don't know. What's your assumption? What assumptions are you making in this way? You know, if we live wisely, um, we know that God will just bring us into that place of more and more fruitfulness. We'll reflect him more and more. We will have a sense of, like, yeah, this is why I was made. This is what life is about. We will have no regrets. I think the title of the sermon, you know, if I knew then, dot, 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 if I knew then what I know now, I would do some things differently. Let's not wait till that time. Let's start thinking about that in the power of the Lord. So how do you do that? Final thing is just how to start, how to be a good watcher. So a good watcher is somebody who says, I want to be wise. I want to walk in God's wisdom. I want to examine my life. I want to do that under his loving encouragement, under his word. With our, you know, That's a good topic in your small group. I want to be wise, and I want to avoid foolishness. I want to avoid making assumptions about my life that I know Jesus has not approved or signed off on and somehow think that I can live the life that welcomes the bridegroom. I want to avoid that foolishness. How do I do that? Here's something to take away right now, and I think that's just use the gift God gives us each day. Remember in this parable, things are happening pretty quickly. The bridegroom is about to arrive. It's going down in a matter of hours. And in a matter of hours, things turn completely upside down for five of the virgins that are there. And the other five actually experience what they originally anticipated to going into the joy of the wedding banquet with the bridegroom. So if the Lord is delayed, if, he, if we're still here at the end of this service, that means he's not come. If uh, we are, he gives us this week, that means he's giving us time. He's giving us the gift of time and the gift of each day. I'll, again, I'll myself, but you can listen in. How often do I think about the coming week or the things I need to do, and I allow that to encroach on my sense of my belonging to the bridegroom, in the bridegroom, my sense of his, you know, the one job that I have. Well, I'm thinking about all these things. I'm worried about all that stuff in the past. 
whether it's the past or the present, we kind of bring all that in and now our, excuse me, the past or the future, we bring it in and now our present is kind of messed up. Sometimes we can mess up our day so much that we long for tomorrow, and then when tomorrow happens, we're like, well, this isn't much fun. I'm going to long for the On and on it goes. Jesus gives us today. He gives us the day that we might say, Lord, help me to be your wise servant, not your foolish one. Help me to be honest with myself under the loving examination of your servants, uh, your spirit. Help me to pour that out. Let me be on your agenda, Jesus, today. Yeah, we need to, we need to look ahead. Okay, I've got this appointment and I've got that uh, conversation. And he's not asking us to change those things necessarily, but we are coming before him with an open hand. If we do that each and every day, we become the wise people that he has intended us to be the way that he created us, the way that he desires us, actually the way that he sees us so that we might manifest that joy that is coming with the bridegroom. Let me close with uh, uh, John Wesley's covenantal prayer. We, some of us were on the, our diocese had an annual diocesan convention by Zoom uh, on yesterday. And uh, part of the devotion with this prayer, which I hadn't heard in quite a while, but I'll close with this because I think it spoke to me and I think it'll speak to us. This is John Wesley speaking his prayer to the Lord, founder of what we call Methodism. But before he was a Methodist, he was a good Anglican and remained an Anglican all his days. So here's what John Wesley wrote. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you, praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. In the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven.